0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends
1: or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
2: The monument being removed is great symbolic uh, victory, but that's, you know, it didn't end racism.
0: The significance of seeing a marker coming up and then also a racist monument going down. It is a very important step to healing the wounds of what racism is in this country.
3: From GPB, this is Georgia Today. It's June 26th, 2020. I'm Steve Fennessy. Across the South, communities are reckoning with the Confederate monuments in their backyards. As one monument in Decatur comes down, a marker honoring a long-overlooked piece of civil rights history prepares to go up. This week, we hear from Decaturish founder and editor Dan Wisenhunt and local activist and rising Decatur high school student Genesis Reddix. Dan started by telling me how the Confederate monument came to be in the first place.
2: Uh, but the monument itself was not erected until 1908, and it was two years after the uh... The Atlanta race riot of 1906, where white citizens uh, killed uh, dozens of uh, black citizens. And the estimates of that are as maybe as high as 100 dead, and they injured many more. And um, Obelisk was supposed to be dedicated in 1907, but uh, during the inscription at the Butler Marble and Granite Company in Marietta, a cable snap and the statue shattered, so it added a couple of extra marks at the time.
3: So they built it, and then they broke it.
2: Yep, they built it and broke it, uh, which is kind of a preview of what ultimately happened to it. The monument was 30 feet tall and was uh, sponsored by the Agnes Lee chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who raised about $2,000 from uh, local donors. And in early March of 1908, the Atlanta Papers were heralding the arrival of this new memorial. Who were some of the people involved in,
3: in this committee to, to build it?
2: Confederate General uh, Clement A. Evans. Oh, so there was, was a
3: there was a general who is still alive 40 years after.
2: Who was to accept the morning on behalf of the South's veterans, had Three or four other monument uh, dedications to attend around the state as well. It was kind of a trend, uh, the lost cause uh, sort of trend, uh, which coincided with uh, oppressing and suppressing black people.
3: So that monument, you know, was there for over a hundred years in the middle of Decatur Square. Genesis, I was, I'm curious what your memories or impressions of that thing, being a Decatur resident, are?
0: I mean, I just looked at it as just a regular statue. Um, It wasn't until my freshman year. uh, That was when I learned that it was actually a Confederate monument, and it was pretty racist. Uh, At that point, I realized it was a big slap in the face, especially because as a black student that attends Decatur, I was I was kind of disappointed that we want to create this place where we're know we're known for being loving and accepting and having a lot of diversity, but then we have this monument that's just um, disrespecting every black person that walks by it. You know, I realized that Decatur wasn't this you know bubble that was so amazing and nice and was always di- like there was always diversity, but that there was a racist past and there is still racism present, obviously. Um, And I had to come to learn that, you know, we shouldn't be able to accept that in our community.
3: Let's talk about that racist past a bit. Right. 1960, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is uh, driving a woman home um, that he and his wife had hosted for dinner.
0: Um, I believe her name was Lillian Smith. She's an author. She wrote Strange Fruit. And um, she, he was driving her to her to Emory Hospital for her cancer treatment.
3: And this is in 1960. Yes. Okay. Um, uh,
0: and this was in DeKalb County. It was outside of Decatur. But he was pulled over, um, and officially, the reason why he was pulled over and ultimately arrested was because of he had um, expired Georgia identification at the time he was moving from he was moving back from Alabama to back to Georgia. And he showed up before a court in which he was given probation. Um, And that meant he couldn't violate any laws um, or he would get prison time. And um, yeah, but obviously this was a huge problem for King, obviously, because, I mean, one of his main form of activism was civil disobedience. And so he would be breaking laws. Around that same time, the Atlanta Student Movement, which had just begun to, like, form, uh, the Atlanta Student Movement was actively organizing um, sit-ins and other demonstrations in order to combat racism in their communities in Atlanta. Several months after he was pulled over, King was actually, he had participated at a sit-in at Rich's. It was a department store in Atlanta. Obviously, this sit-in uh, resulted in all of the participants being arrested, including King. King spoke with WSB-TV about, after his arrest. He commented on desegregation in Atlanta.
4: And we feel that if, uh, if the progress is to be meaningful progress, it must include the Deep South. Uh, including Atlanta and I'm sure that uh, with the reasonable climate in Atlanta, it is possible to desegregate lunch counters without any real difficulty and uh, the transition could be a very smooth one.
0: Uh, so while dozens of protesters were actually released, um, Judge Oscar Mitchell Judge Mitchell had ordered King to remain in jail.
3: Judge Oscar Mitchell was the decab judge who initially had fined Dr. King $25. For having that expired tag. What more can you tell us about him?
0: Uh, So, Judge Oscar Mitchell was um, the standing judge for the CAB.
3: Well, he was a racist, first of all, and he didn't mind saying so. That's Clarence Seliger, the judge who ultimately unseated Judge Mitchell back in 1980. Janet says Seliger was interviewed by her classmates during your research on King's arrest. What did he have to say?
0: Um, so Judge Clarence Seeliger was interviewed by one of our team members, Hallie Gordon, um, who's a Dukkater student. And Judge Seeliger didn't mince his words when describing his predecessor, Oscar Mitchell.
1: But if they didn't have an attorney, he could be very abusive toward African-Americans who appeared in this court. And the kinds of cases he would receive would be things like driving under the influence, simple battery, simple assault, maybe small cases of theft, that kind of thing. They're all misdemeanors, maximum penalty. He could eventually be a a year in jail or 12 months in jail or a $1,000 fine. And that's the kind of cases he had. He was an
3: absolute dictator in the courtroom. Okay, so Dr. King is now before Judge Mitchell for violating the probation from the traffic infraction.
0: When King had appeared before him, uh, having broken his uh, probation, um, we have a first account story from Charles Black. Um, Charles Black co founded the Atlanta student movement while, a student at, uh, while being a student at Morehouse College. He actually knew Dr. King and was in the courtroom indicator when he was sentenced.
2: When he violated his, his parole, he was immediately sent in the dead of the night to Reesville Prison in the back of a paddy wagon with a a loose German shepherd dog in there. And and King was said, according to saying later, that that's the most afraid he'd ever been. Uh, So you got locked up. This was in the midst of a presidential election campaign. Uh, Kennedy and Nixon.
0: I do
3: not run for the office of the president, saying that if I'm elected, life will be easy. I think to be an American citizen in the 1960s will be a difficult and hazardous occupation.
0: The Kennedys who um, had decided that they were going to intervene um, and call the governor to negotiate the release of King.
3: So Genesis, when the Kennedys intervened, King was released from prison after having spent just about a day there.
0: Here's Dr. King speaking on October 1960 with WSB-TV shortly after his release.
4: Well, I owe a great debt of gratitude to Senator Kennedy and his family for this. Uh, I don't know the details of it, but naturally I'm very happy to know of Senator Kennedy's concern and uh, all that he did to make this possible. Uh, I might say that there are no political implications here. I'm sure that the senator did it because of his... Uh, real concern and his uh, humanitarian bent.
0: After the Kennedys had negotiated to release King from prison, the King decided that he was going to put a support with Kennedy, which ultimately shifted the black vote towards the Democrats. Yeah, that
3: endorsement was huge. Right. The, 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 the election of 1960, Kennedy versus Nixon, was insanely close. Exactly. And every vote really mattered. So exactly. the fact that Dr. King was now endorsing basically John F. Kennedy it right. sounds like as a is a somewhat as a result of his intervention and, and keeping him out of jail helped swing the election in some way
0: yeah well we definitely believe that was the reason um, that King decided that he was going to support the Kennedys at the time. <laughs>
3: So fast forward 20 years. It's 1980. Judge Mitchell is now unseated by Clarence Seeliger, who's still on the bench today. So, Genesis, tell us why Judge Seeliger is so important in this story.
0: Um, so Judge Seeliger is um, the current judge of the Cab County, I would say. Um, and he actually unseated Judge Oscar Mitchell. Um, judge
3: Oscar Mitchell, the one who sentenced Dr. King. Right. and Back in 1960.
0: Yes, and was the racist. And um, Seliger brought major change. Like He was like the direct opponent of Mitchell. Um, he made sure to completely reform the court systems. He had integrated the court system. He um, removed the Confederate flag from the courtroom.
3: Wait, there was a Confederate flag in the courtroom?
0: Yes. Judge Seliger told one of my classmates while interviewing him, Uh, that Oscar Mitchell had a Confederate flag in his courtroom.
1: Uh, Judge Mitchell used to have the flag, and he'd keep it in his own courtroom. Uh, But on days of, I understand, when days of Robert E. Lee's birthday, or the Confederate Memorial Day, he would drape the flag over the entrance to his courtroom, kind of like that, over it. And that's how he used the flag.
0: Ziegler was like, absolutely not, we're taking that out.
1: And I made the statement to... uh, And in the courtroom, said the Confederate flag used to be a flag of honor, but now it represents an attitude toward race and therefore should never be in any courtroom. I'll ask my bailiff to remove it. And so the bailiff, who is the first African American employee of the state court, picked up the flag and took it out of the courtroom, and we went on with it.
0: Even now, he's still continuing to fight the good fight and um, making sure that. There's no bias in the systems, especially when it comes to Black Americans and the issues that affect us.
3: Just ahead, how the city of Decatur finally reconciled with its past. This is Georgia Today.
0: New York Times bestselling author Nick Stone is on a mission.
1: It is my personal
2: goal to put as few white people in my books as possible. I'm not kidding. It's nothing personal. I just, there are plenty of books with white kids in them.
0: I'm Deneen Milner of GPB's Speakeasy with Deneen. On our latest podcast, we hear from Nick Stone on bringing more diversity to the books our children read. Join us at speakeasywithdeneen.com or anywhere you get podcasts.
3: This is Georgia Today. We're hearing from Dan Wisenhunt, founder and editor of Decaturish.com. An online news outlet covering the city of Decatur. And Genesis Reddix, a rising senior at Decatur High School. Dan, for years, municipalities like the city of Decatur have been hamstrung trying to get rid of Confederate monuments. We have the George Floyd protests several weeks ago. Monuments across the South are becoming more and more a flashpoint. Um, And attention more and more attentions being paid to them What was going on in the city of Decatur and in DeKalb County in terms of you know, what are we going to do about this?
2: Well, I think it was generally true nationally that these protests um, Happened, you know, there weren't a whole lot of Organized ones at first Um, the Beacon Hill Black Alliance had planned one uh, for one Sunday but that also happened right around the time there were some pretty un- unruly protests in Atlanta, and there were confrontations between the cops and uh, protesters. And at the time, the Beacon Hill Black Alliance, as led by civil rights attorney Mally Davis, um, opted to postpone that because he was worried about people showing up uh, to incite violence. Um, a few days later, Malley Davis and his group uh held one on the square. Black lives Black lives and I actually I actually took my son to that one. I wanted him to see it uh for he's five years
5: old.
4: Brothers, sisters, friends, allies, thank you for coming today to show that in Decatur in Atlanta, Black Lives Matter. Thank you all.
3: Were they calling for the removal of the monument? Yes, was that one of the demands? Yeah, that never
2: stopped. You know, I mean, that, that's been going on for three years. It just was at a low simmer, and it kind of cranked it up to a boil um, when the George Floyd killing happened and the protests happened. And you wrote an editorial about the monument. What did it say? Uh, something to the effect of, please get this piece of crap out of the square. Um It's danger. It's dangerous to uh, their citizens because somebody's going to try to remove it one day and they're going to hurt themselves. And, you know, my other point was, if the state wants to fight this battle right now, let them. I mean, it's a ridiculously unpopular position to take. Dan, in the city of Decatur's effort
3: to remove the Confederate monument from the center of town, city attorney Brian Downs came up with a kind of novel approach to getting rid of it, not through the legislature,
2: but rather through the courts. So under state law, it's my understanding that a nuisance complaint can be taken up without official sanction by the city commission. And that's key, because if the city commission had held a vote and said, we're going to order you to remove this monument, you know, it would have given people who might have opposed it a heads up. Uh, that they were doing it, and normally I'm not in favor of government being sneaky, but in this case I'll, I'll let that slide uh, right. because they did it for the right reason. So they and, were
3: they were circumventing what we would normally think would be the the the, the protocol, which is have a public well, I wouldn't debate. Say
2: they were circumventing it; they were just using the the law okay. to their advantage. Fair. I mean, there was no uh, requirement for them to go to the city right. commission. Now the city commission was all for it. Um, you know, they were definitely supportive of it, but I think the city preferred to handle, I mean, hell, I didn't even know about what Brian had done until the judge, uh, Seliger issued the order to remove it. You know, that well, was the first I'd heard of it. Um, and normally I'm, I'm the one getting calls about that sort of thing. Uh, so. So Brian yeah, Downs,
3: and, Brian Downs, a city attorney, files this motion in DeKalb mm-hmm. County Superior Court on June 10th. Mm-hmm. And it ends up in the court of Judge Clarence Seeliger.
2: Judge Clarence Seeliger says the years-long controversy over this lost cause monument indicator has made it a lightning rod, a public safety catastrophe waiting to happen. So he ordered it removed and put into storage by June 26th. But other civil wars...
3: Well, walk me through this. Uh, how did you find out when the monument was actually coming down? Because it, it, it kind of happened under cover of darkness, right?
2: Uh, I saw chatter about it on the Facebooks. Um, and I called my intern, Alex Brown, and Alex rode to the square within seconds on a flat tire on her bicycle.
4: They
1: have the crane loops around the belts that they tied to the monument. And honestly, I think that's about to
2: be it. We were there to watch it go down.
3: Was there anyone protesting its removal?
2: Nope. There's no appetite for that anymore. There's not. I mean, uh, well, no. You, know, uh, you <laughs> say
3: that. You say that. But you know, there's in the days leading up to it, um, someone filmed uh, someone taking down all of the signs that were surrounding the monument. There's no law against me taking this off. It's a state monument. You cannot deface a state monument. That's state law.
2: People are cowards. That's that's their fundamental nature. That's what animates them. You don't see these counter-protesters showing up in force because they're fundamentally cowards, uh, and they're only going to show up when there's nobody there to oppose them.
3: Genesis, how did you feel about the monument coming down?
0: Well, for me, I was like, finally. Like, I'm just happy that we're at this point where they're actually listening to us. We're no longer tolerating monuments of hatred because that's what they are. And so um, to see it go down... I felt was actually a good step in the direction. It was something that actually would represent what Decatur wants to stand for. Um, And so, yeah, it definitely was very monumental to see.
3: So Genesis, we talked earlier about the 1960 arrest of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Decatur. In the days leading up to the Confederate monument coming down this month, you made your case before the Decatur City Commission about the need for a marker not far from where the monument stood, to tell the story of King's arrest.
0: Uh, and we have a representative of the commemorating King group today, Genesis Reddix. Welcome to the meeting. Hello, thank you so much. Um, I would like to just thank the City Commission for allowing me to have this time to share um, the work of so many students to for this project. So I'm going to share my screen. Basically, we were asking for Decatur to sign their support, sign on their support for the for the marker uh, to be placed at the corner of McDonough and Trinity, which is actually just across the street from City Hall. And we needed to match um, a total of $2,500 and pledge that we were going to maintain the marker so that the Georgia Historical Society could see that the city's backing it, that activist groups are back, backing it, and obviously the students who worked on the whole project are also backing it. And so Yeah, basically what we're looking for, their support.
1: This is the resolution supporting application to the Georgia Historical Society for a a historical marker commemorating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
3: During the commission meeting, meeting Decatur Mayor Mayor Patty Garrett read the resolution out loud.
1: And whereas the commemorating King team has researched and documented the events surrounding a traffic citation issued to Dr. King in DeKalb County and his subsequent detention.
0: and, sent- We were looking for them to authorize a place for it and say that we want this marker. Right. Um, we're going to handle it and manage it. Um, and we're, we're welcome to it, basically. And right. I feel like that was good enough for us and good enough for the Georgia so Historical they, Society to they,
3: see. So the commission agreed.
0: Yes, they were completely on board. It was completely unanimous.
3: Tony Powers votes aye.
0: And um,
1: the chair votes aye and the resolution is adopted. So thank you.
3: When are we going to see a marker?
0: So we want to see it come up in the fall of 2021. Okay. That's the goal. Right now it's being processed by the Georgia Historical Society. Um, We had just sent in um, all of our sponsors' signatures and their pledge to say that they will fund and um, manage it. So So
3: that amount I find interesting, $2,500. Right. Dan, wasn't wasn't the amount uh, one of the amounts— that went into the construction of the Confederate monument in Decatur Square, $2,000 or something?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Which, I mean, in 1908 was, you know, that was a lot of money. Right. Yeah.
0: I spoke with civil rights activist uh, Dr. Rosalind Pope. Uh, as the co-founder of the Atlanta Student Movement and also one of the writers of the appeal for human rights, it was very important that we got her opinion on the marker coming up. She said that she supported the idea of the marker um, when King was given that traffic ticket and ultimately arrested and sentenced. Mm-hmm. The
1: recognition of something m- momentous that happened right here uh, should inspire people to say, well, we don't want this anymore. We don't want this to happen again. You know, I think that would be an excellent, excellent move to make. Yeah.
0: She also kind of coined in talking to me directly about how, as young people, it's important that we involve ourselves in activism and fighting for what's right. We need the young people to back us up. We're, you know, we're getting on. Um, and she said, "It's always going to be young people who are pushing the mu- the movement forward."
1: We can't just rest on our laurels and say, "Well, you know, they did this, that, and the other." There's so much still to be done. I'm glad that you're one of those.
3: So Genesis, I see that your dad. Is in the control room. Why don't we bring him in here and see what he thinks about um, all the work you've been doing? Yeah. What's your What's your name, sir? Uh, Otis Reddick. Otis. Hi. I'm Steve. Thanks for coming in. There's some headphones there. Ow. Oops.
5: <laughs> okay.
3: I'm curious to hear from both of you about what it means to have a, a marker that's going to go up, or you know, not long after this monument to the Confederacy has come down. What does that say about where you live and the time in which you're
5: living? Um to be honest i'm i'm happy because you know over the years um black people have been fighting you know fighting for equality and there's a lot of symbolism a lot of things around you know like the confederate flags and different manner men that it it affected us you know and we have to just like you go to certain school and they have a certain name of confederate generals and you are forced to go there so i'm just happy that she's involved happy to see changes coming and i hope you know it's just one step in a long journey yeah but i'm just happy about it and i'm happy that she decided to do this you know it's something that we have always concerned about just the opportunities for black folks and, you know, just racism and just a better world. Yeah. I just think that it's a right step. I think it's getting better. We have a long way to go, but it's a... And how long have you lived in Decatur? Um, well, I've been there for a oh, long now. I'm. You can tell originally I'm not from here. I'm from Jamaica. Mm. But I've been there, what, what about 20 years? Okay. Mm-hmm, about 20 years. Is it different now than what it was? I think I think improvement is coming along. I mean, with all the events that are going on now, I think there are things that are raising that have always been there, but people are seeing them now. But I still do have to say it's a lot of improvement. Mm-hmm. Genesis,
3: anything you want to add?
0: Um, I think the significance of seeing a marker coming up and then also a racist monument going down kind of, is just so significant to our times. I'm hoping that this will show up in history books or be a lesson taught, um, at least in the Decatur community. Um, And I think, like my dad said, it it is a very important step to healing the wounds of what racism is in this country. Um, We need more things to go.
3: We got a long way to go.
0: We have a long way to go.
3: My thanks to Genesis Reddix, a rising senior at Decatur High School, and her dad, Otis, and Dan Wisenhunt, founder and editor of Decaturish.com. Across the South, Confederate monuments are starting to come down. But in response, President Donald Trump has promised to issue an executive order that would protect them from destruction and dismantling. For more on the debate over Confederate monuments, go to gpbnews.org. I'm Steve Fennessy. This is Georgia Today. Production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. Our producer is Sean Powers. See you next time.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh
1: Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.